Hello and welcome to Governance Matters from Corporate Secretary, the show where we examine the work of governance professionals and the latest developments they face. I'm your host, Editor-at-Large Ben Maiden. Later on in the programme, I talk to Margaret Preston, who is a director at Otis Worldwide Corporation and McCormick & Company, about some of the issues boards should be planning for and addressing ahead of 2024, and about how corporate secretaries and general counsel can help guide them. But first, we're taking a new look at the potential impacts of artificial intelligence on the legal profession, only this time with some real data to inform discussions around a topic that's grasped so many people's attention in the recent months. Jonathan Choi and Daniel Schwartz of the University of Minnesota Law School recently published a research paper looking at the effects of AI on legal analysis. They conducted an experiment by administering law school exams to students both with and without access to GPT-4, which they described as the best performing AI model available right now. Among other things, they found that using GPT-4 significantly improves students' performance on multiple choice questions, but not on complex essay questions. They also found that the tool's impact depended heavily on the student's initial skill level. Those with low skill levels saw the performance improve dramatically, while those with high skill levels saw the performances drop off. I spoke with Daniel Schwartz about the experiment and its findings, and what they might mean for recruiting, training and assessing lawyers once they are out in the world at companies and law firms. Well, Danny, hi. Welcome to Governance Matters. Could you just start off by giving us a brief overview of the research that you did with your colleague and also what prompted you to do this study and why why lawyers, of all people? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, obviously, ChatGPT has uh, been very prominent in the news and AI in general, generative AI, has been very prominent for lawyers. And I think the reason for that is pretty clear, which is that these tools excel at producing text. And of course, the job of lawyers is oftentimes to produce text. And so it's a very natural and important question to ask how these tools can facilitate, replace, uh, 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 change the roles of lawyers and law students over time. So that's an issue I've been working on for some time. Um, I did initially, shortly after ChatGPT came out, a study that looked at um, how ChatGPT alone uh, could perform relative to law students. And at the time, we found that it could pass us or it could produce a sort of passing law school exam. We found sort of a, it scored a C or a C plus on average in law school classes on its own. But since that time, a few things have happened. I mean, one is just the technology has gotten a lot better. There's actually a really huge difference between GPT-4 and ChatGPT, which relies on GPT-3.5, uh, sort of GPT-3 technology. Um, it's just GPT-4 is much more uh, sophisticated in what it can do. Um, and then the other thing that's sort of very clear is that the way that this AI is used matters tremendously. So prompting it in the right ways, uh, providing it with the relevant information has a huge impact on how good a job it can do. And so, you know, even since we published that initial study, there was a study that, that I, I'm sure a lot of people have heard about that GPT-4 could pass the bar exam and in fact excelled at the bar exam. There have been studies in other settings showing that human use of AI that's well-trained can perform well. And there are a number of um, uh, startups that are using um, uh, uh, methods for combining GPT technology with uh, large databases um, to enhance the ability of attorneys to produce uh, work product quickly and efficiently. So 
that was sort of the motivation uh, for why we wanted to study in particular what effect the use of the sort of most sophisticated AI available these days, which is, you know, I still think GPT-4, um, has when lawyers or law students are using it compared to when they're not, right? Not just how does this perform compared to a human, but how do humans who actually have the ability to use AI perform relative to humans who don't? And I think that's just the most relevant question for most lawyers and uh, 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 law students, because at the end of the day, people are using this technology. And the question is, how valuable a tool is it? Um, uh, or, or to what extent is it a tool that can actually have some detrimental effects as, you know, folks uh, uh, may be aware, right? People have certainly used it to, to very poor effect, but uh, without checking citations that it produces and allowing it to fabricate sources. And so that was, that was the basic research question we were aiming to um, get some insight on in this particular study. Okay. And um, one of the findings was that the uh, GPT-4 helped, uh, was very helpful with multiple choice questions, less so uh, with essay questions, which I guess shouldn't be too surprising in a sort of, in, a, in, in the nature of the data it's supposed to be using. Was that surprising to you? And do you think that gap is likely to diminish, presumably as tech becomes more sophisticated? Yeah, I mean, I think it wasn't surprising because in a way, one thing that, that GPT-4 does well is it answers sort of straightforward questions well that have a clear answer. Um, and so when it comes to simpler questions and multiple choice questions, oftentimes do tend to be simpler. They have less nuance. It's clear what the right answer is almost by necessity. Um, GPT-4 can be a pretty powerful technology, particularly if it's prompted in the right way. And so we found that students who were effectively allowed to use the AI to help answer multiple choice questions, it really helped them and it helped them because you can also sort of interrogate if you if the ai gets a result that's different than what your instinct is you can sort of say well why i thought the right answer was this why why don't you think it's the right answer and so there's a very easy sort of way for humans to use this technology um and to sort of question its output and so uh yeah i think that you know, the, the the initial instinct we have from that is it makes sense because this technology is good at answering straightforward questions and there are clear ways for humans to enhance that process by essentially asking, you know, pretty standardized follow-up questions where there's a discrepancy between the answer GPT-4 gives and the answer that, a, you know, the human initially had when looking at the problem. Mm. And how did the uh, the students and, and the faculty feel about feel about doing this? I mean, I don't know if these were for actual genuine exams or, or just sort of mock exams for the purpose of the study. But are there concerns about you know cheating or some people getting ahead who just are better at using tech? Or so the way that we structured our um, study was we took students in real classes who took real exams. And we we on the real exams we we were not allowing students to use this technology, but then we had students volunteer to participate in the study and those volunteer students, we would allow them to take a second exam that was different in terms of the, the substance, but where they could actually use the AI. Now it wouldn't count towards their final grade. So it was just sort of as part of the study, but we, we compensated them and we took various other measures to try to 
ensure that the second exam was comparable to the first exam in all respects, except for the fact that they were using AI to assist them. And so that provided us with a way of testing, okay, how do students perform on various different elements of their exam when they have AI compared to when they don't? Um, and it was sort of a pretty sort of natural comparison set. Um, and, and again, that to us was the real question, right? Not, you know, what happens if you try to just have ChatGPT do something on its own, but if, if folks are using it as a tool, does that enhance their ability to produce a, a good work product? And so, you know, again, just to sort of reiterate the, the core results for the multiple choice, we found it did. It had a huge positive effect for everyone. For essays, it was a more complicated story. We found that for less skilled students and for easier essay questions, providing access to ChatGPT actually did improve the quality of their answers. But it was actually less clear that that result held for the higher quality students and for the sort of quite skilled students answering more difficult questions. There was actually an effect that we saw where use of this technology actually decreased the quality of the legal writing. And in, in large part, that was because it's hard to integrate the text that is produced by this AI with human text. And so if you're using this technology to help you um, uh, uh, produce text, but you're already pretty good at writing and pretty accomplished at thinking through the appropriate organization of the materials, it can actually introduce a hurdle or a challenge that you normally wouldn't face. And so the, the effects really were different depending upon the starting skill of the students and depending upon the complexity of the legal task. But I think the overall implication is that for simple, relatively simple legal tasks and for new lawyers or less skilled lawyers, AI can be a huge boost in terms of allowing them to produce high quality results. It's less likely to, or it's harder for it to produce that result in a straightforward fashion for more complex or technical tasks and for lawyers who really know what they're doing and are quite skilled, it may actually even be that using AI in that setting can can be detrimental. Mm -hmm. you, you sort of mentioned in the sort of the, the introduction to the the study that, that this might lead to a sort of a, an equalizing effect on the on the legal profession. Um, how do you sort of see that sort of manifesting itself? And you know, if if you are if you do consider if one considers oneself one of the better lawyers out there, would you just not? use AI and just sort of, you know, if you think it's going to bring you down? I, look, I think you need to be more cautious, right? So like, I don't think litigators in front of the Supreme Court should be using AI to write their briefs, right? <laughs> you know, that is going to harm your brief writing. Um, and I think in general, the level of caution one has in using the AI depends a bit upon one's initial starting level. But I do think, for instance, that law firms, in-house counsel might be able to use younger, less experienced lawyers to produce work product that is more similar to uh, what you might get from more experienced lawyers. And that is particularly true if the character of what they're doing is uh, relatively straightforward, but it's also true, you know, th there are a lot of elements we weren't able to test. We actually have a follow-up paper we're working on right now that looks at some more practically oriented skills. We're hoping to have that out soon. Um, and what we found actually is 
we've been talking about quality and most of our study that, that we're discussing now looked at the relative quality of AI produced work versus um, work produced without AI. What's really clear is that not only can it improve the quality for younger lawyers, but it actually really can improve the speed at which lawyers can produce work product. And so in terms of the equalizing effect, um, one could certainly imagine that it'd be easier for say, in-house counsel to, to hire right out of law school or to hire maybe uh, folks who have less experience in a particular field and allow them to use AI to make up the difference between their, their sort of initial coming in skill set and, and, and what's expected of them. And that can be particularly done if, for instance, you have clear models. So, well, look, here's the last contract we drafted with this vendor, produce a contract for this new vendor. One of the techniques you can use to uh, get good output with AI is to, to provide examples of, hey, this is the type of thing I want you to do. Now produce this, a similar contract for this other, for this other vendor. And so we actually, in addition to looking at how humans performed with AI compared to how they performed without AI, another element of the study was to look at how different types of prompts, like the prompt that I'm just describing, where you provide an example of good work product how that compares to these. And we found that the, the style of prompting really matters. So it really matters if you can provide good examples to the AI. And it also really matters if you can provide relevant source material. So, you know, with the notorious example of the lawyer who had the AI making fabricating cases that didn't exist, um, you, you know, ChatGPT is not great or an AI in general is not great if you just ask it to produce legal text, you know, provide it the relevant source material. But if you're able to, to, to say, say, okay, look, here's a relevant statute or regulation, or here's a relevant case or legal principle, apply it to these facts, you get much better answers. And we found actually that that type of prompting technique produced output that really was similar to even our very top law students in terms of its quality. And that's, of course, a similar type of thing to what some of these legal tech startups are trying to do uh, in terms, you know, whether it's a, a co-counsel or Harvey, what they're trying to do is marry the prompting with the source material so that you're able to actually get output that is referencing the underlying text and where you can actually verify it very quickly. So I think there's a lot, I mean, I think if I'm sort of going to take a you know 10,000 foot perspective on the research, not only is there a lot of power for the AI to have an equalizing force and to sort of enhance the capabilities of younger lawyers, less experienced lawyers, but I think it's also the case that as the technology gets better and as lawyers get better at using the technology, the use cases uh, uh, may increase significantly. Mm -hmm. I can see CFOs and uh, general counsel rubbing their hands together at the thought of being able to hire in maybe perhaps younger or junior lawyers, um, pay them less, uh, whether it's in-house in or in the law firm that they're using. But I mean, do you, sort of, you sort of touched on the, the idea of improving maybe sort of younger, less experienced lawyers. Do you think AI in, in itself can be a sort of a, a tool in terms of training and development for counsel once they are out in the work world rather than, you know, perhaps using it for practice and uh, at law school? Look, I think honestly that AI is going to affect almost every element of um, our economy. and our, uh, And so it's absolutely the case that 
one of the use cases of this technology is in training. And not just in terms of producing uh, work product, but in terms of, say, helping people understand you know, particular tasks at a, at a firm or particular legal capabilities, particular areas of law. So that's an area I've studied less, but I think that it, we're already seeing you know, the power of this tool to help answer specific questions. And, you know, the look, I think the line between training lawyers and practicing law is actually pretty thin, right? I mean, a lot of what lawyers have to do when they confront a new uh, legal problems, educate themselves, right? And it, this tool is a very powerful tool for that because um, it can really answer questions quickly, relatively accurately, and it can adapt as you move forward and you can change the level of complexity. So that is another area where I do think, you know, it's going to have a dramatic effect. I just have less of a sense of the ways in which this will transform how lawyers operate, because I think we're still at the beginning of understanding uh, the implications of this technology for the field. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, just just lastly, any any just sort of final thoughts already on um, lessons lawyers, whether they're in law firms or in you know in house counsel, can sort of draw from this. I mean, if you were if you were a GC, would you be looking at this and thinking, hmm, this might be uh, something we need to get into quicker than quicker than uh, otherwise? Every company needs to have a policy about the ways in which uh, uh, lawyers at the firm, external lawyers will be using, can and will use this AI. There are a lot of risks. There are confidentiality concerns because things that are just typed into GPT-4, you know, that you you might waive confidentiality, they might become available. There, We all know there are risks that these you know, tools can hallucinate and produce fabrication. So there are clear risks. But at the same time, the, the technology has such power to you know improve the efficiency improve the quality of work product particularly certain types of legal work product that and that capacity is improving over time and it's also very clear that as humans get more adept at using this technology they get better at it um so for all those reasons i think that it's short-sighted to have uh policies that preclude the use of this technology or sort of try to uh, hide from it. I think at the end of the day, um, firms need to be investing a lot in thinking about how to use this technology safely in a way that you know comports with the firm's values, but at the same time can improve efficiency. And that may mean you need fewer lawyers. It may mean you need the same amount of lawyers, but they can do more work. It may mean that the balance of tasks that are done in-house versus uh, a reference to external, uh, brought to ex- uh, external firms changes. It may mean that the there's more of a demand that external firms spend less time on certain types of tasks or actually affirmatively use AI. So I think all of those questions are still up in the air, but like I think that the one thing I know or I'm very confident in is that if a company is not actively thinking about those questions, it's missing an opportunity. So I think that's the real bottom line. You need to be doing the research, thinking about these issues, because they're not going to go away. Great. Well, Dan, thank you so much for sharing that with us. I'm sure it's uh, uh, there's a lot to think about. And uh, please come back when your new research is out. We'd love to hear about it. Will do. Thanks again. The National Association of Corporate Directors provides directorship certification that's more than a credential. 
It sets the bar for high-performing directors, preparing you to meet today's biggest challenges and create value for your organization. Learn more at nacdonline.org. And we're back with the Governance Matters podcast. Thanks again to Daniel Schwartz from the University of Minnesota Law School. Next, we head to the boardroom as I speak with Margaret Preston, who sits on the boards of Otis, where she's chair of the Nominating and Governance Committee, and McCormick and Company, where she is a member of the Compensation Committee. Margaret is also NACD Directorship Certified. She explained some of the areas her boards are focused on as we head to the end of the year, including work on upcoming proxy statements. She also discussed the role of boards as some companies face pushback against ESG initiatives, whether boards need subject experts, and how corporate secretaries and general counsel can best support their boards in 2024. Hi, Margaret. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Ben. It's a pleasure to join you today. Thank you. Well, um, uh, as we go into the last couple of months of the year, um, as happens every year, what are some of the key tasks that that your boards uh, are working on? And are there any particular areas that you'll be focusing your efforts uh, between now and the end of the year? Yes, Ben, it's a really timely question. Depending on the fiscal year end and the meeting cadence, many fall board meetings revolve around a three-year strategic plan. It's a good time for boards to consider its own three-year strategic plan in alignment with that of the company. In advising and supporting management, I think of the board's work in three all-encompassing areas. One is defining and executing against business plans. That takes discipline, vision, agility, all of this while we're going under undergoing tremendous change in these businesses and managing a really wide risk environment. So an ongoing assessment of results relative to plan when and how to pivot is critically important. The second is capital allocation to support priorities and performance. This is looking, of course, at financial resources, liquidity and cash, financial resilience, and the ability to accelerate. And then the third is leadership, talent and people, resources needed to execute the plan succession planning, attracting, developing, and retaining talent, again, in this really changing world. Going into 2024, boards should assess and address their abilities to keep up with and advise management in this really changing environment. Assure that governance structures are updated for this environment, looking at charters, all committees own risks now, looking at board leadership and composition, tenure, pipeline, skills matrix, and looking at board succession planning as well. Chairs, CEO, lead director, committee chairs, all of the board. I think all of this can be defined broadly as enterprise risk management. And I think business and boards are reshaping themselves in this rapidly changing environment. There's a lot to to take on. Um, I mean, I know one of the specific tasks that the companies are involved in this time of year is obviously getting their 2024 proxy statements ready, um, which is obviously a process the board oversees and has sign off on. Um, I mean, as you know, a lot uh, proxies are evolving rapidly. They're including a lot more information, whether it's about like board uh, composition and uh, directors' um, uh, biographies or ESG information, that sort of thing. Are there any sort of particular issues that you think board should make sure that their company's proxy statements include in 24? Obviously, the, the agenda, as you say, the agenda of issues facing companies evolves every year, um, but do you think there should be areas where they should look to focus their disclosure? It's such a great question because the whole regulatory environment is changing, as you had noted, and all of the learnings from last year's proxy season are being discussed on our boards as we prepare for the 2024 season. 
there were a number of activities that occurred last year. So we use our general counsel and outside advisors to help us assess what happened in 2023 across the S&P 500 and use that as a window into what could be possible topics for 2024. It's important also to remember uh, that those companies operating globally have to plan to adhere to European or other regional regulations, not just those in the US and with the SEC. For example, European Union climate regulations are much broader and moving more rapidly than ours are in the US. And on the other hand, many European companies with workers' councils do not allow reporting of worker demographics, which are of interest to US investors and proxy advisors. So it's kind of, you have to really stand across a couple of regions and regulators and compliance obligations, as well as what investor interest is. I now think that each committee of the board has a role in preparing the proxy review and sign off. And that's very clear. For NOMGov committees, the past year, there's been a need to understand the universal proxy statement and the card. And as you referenced, Ben, that includes a lot of information about the board and the skills of the board. This is a more important thing than we've seen in the past, which is a short bio, just with roles held in board service. More information is required regarding relevant experience and diversity of perspectives. This is to inform the reader as to why each director is well-suited to sit in the seat and to serve as advisors to leadership on the current business issues and risk and opportunities over that three-year plan. This is the G part of ESG, which you mentioned. The NOMGov committee on the boards I sit on and many others have oversight over ESG at the company as part of their remit. We just spoke a bit about G in terms of governance, but on the S side, boards are focused on the main topics here, which revolve around diversity, equity, and inclusion, and whether or not a board should take a social presence. And that's certainly been a topic of a lot of conversation. And on the E side, there are commitments related to climate change and net zero. So there's a lot going on in preparing for proxy season. I think most disclosures, as we all know, need to align with the company's strategy and vision. And that's why the ESG discussion needs to be very carefully put together. Mm -hmm. Well, you sort of note that sort of the focus on um, DEI. And as, as you know, there's been pushback in some quarters, um, both on ESG uh, agendas in general and corporate DEI programs in particular. Um, where do you see the board sitting in its role in terms of deciding to balance against potential say, like backlash that it might face for its DI program and obviously pursuing S related goals that it, it you know the company believes in and a part of its um part of its culture and part of its uh, mission to sort of you know pursue increased diversity for example um, what what's the board role in in making those sorts of calls you think you know it's a topic we're having a lot of discussion on in corporate boards and boards are seriously reviewing the recent change of sentiment regarding both esg and dei programs um, and as we noted earlier global companies have to look at it through several lenses but what we're seeing overall is the climate change commitments regarding carbon and greenhouse gas reductions and net zero over time to be appear to be under slightly less pressure and public pressure than the diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation. I think that the trend is interesting. The issues are not going away, although they're becoming politicized, unfortunately. 
you know, many factors are driving this, but I do think that the boards are, are really discussing and looking carefully at vision um, to, to better determine how we achieve these goals that we're driving for, which in the end, Ben, are really about creating better, stronger organizations and uh, that drive value creation for shareholders and all the stakeholders. While we see some language change at the board level on these topics and some focus inwardly, I don't see a major shift in how boards and organization address these questions. Actually, it's the opposite. The focus at the board level is more intense, particularly on human capital issues. You'll see that many boards have changed their compensation committee title to the Compensation and Human Capital Committee. They are focused on talent, attracting, developing, and retaining talent. That is such a differentiator in any company's success. So we continue to talk about these matters. We pay a lot of attention to what our stakeholders are interested in, all of them, the wide range of them. But we've got to align all of this, as you initially said in your question, to business. Does it align with the strategy and the vision of the corporation? And is it a key to ongoing success? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, it's a delicate balancing act in some cases. Um, so there's also a lot of discussion around, and you touched on this, uh, board sort of diversity, both of skills and uh, people's backgrounds, their, their demographics. Um, and along with that is discussion about the need for uh, specialist members of board, uh, whether that's in terms of like specialists understanding climate change or AI, cybersecurity, this kind of thing. Um, and But there are also folks who sort of governance uh, professionals who say it's probably more advantageous to have, uh, make sure you have uh, directors who are very good at asking the right questions, who are very good at learning um, in general, um, so they can provide um, that kind of oversight expertise rather than necessarily subject-specific expertise. What, what are your thoughts on that? How do you, how, what do you think the, the, is the balance uh, that boards should be looking for in that, in that area? It's a great question. And as with most things in business, unfortunately the answer in my view is it depends. A lot depends on the industry in which a company operates, the regulatory and compliance environment, and their broader risk management framework. But I think their boards are finding there are many ways to come at this request for specialization, including, as you referenced, adding an expert to the board, assuring expert talent in the organization, and hiring consultants with expertise on the topic at hand. For an example, one of the boards that I'm on, in order to make sure that we had the best understanding on cyber risk management, did encourage the entire audit committee to take courses on cyber risk management, and the NACD does have a good course on that. My view is that we should not inadvertently fall into a series of single topic experts on the board. And as you suggest in your question, generalists with a wide portfolio of expertise and diversity of perspectives who can opine on a wide range of business issues are the most helpful. Um, continuing board education is important and there are many ways board members can deepen their understanding of these issues. Back to your audience though, I think uh, general counsel and corporate secretaries play an important role in advising the board on current topics impacting the company, including regulatory and compliance matters of which there are many more given activist investors, proxy advisor, and an activist SEC, as well as on governance trends. So I think in helping the board set an agenda 
and setting the NomGov committee agenda, corporate secretaries and general counsel play a key role in making sure ongoing board education goes on. Well, and just to build on that, just lastly, as we look towards 2024, obviously the roles of corporate secretaries and general counsel have evolved in, over the years to become more involved in sort of strategic thinking as well as just, you know, supporting uh, the board in administrative sort of functions. Um, what, when we look towards next year, are there any areas where you'd like to see corporate secretaries and general counsel perhaps playing a bigger role than they do traditionally or really getting involved to support that their, support their boards, given the array of sort of issues that, that you've covered uh, in, so far? I would. I think that general counsels and corporate secretaries should continue to encourage us as board members to do the work we need to do. And by the way, work with the lead director, chair of committees to make sure that appropriate resources are in place. This continues making sure we have ongoing education. Is it on a continuing basis? Are we assuring that regulatory and compliance matters have a fulsome place on the meeting agendas, not just stuffed back in an appendix with no time to discuss? Is there an annual review of important litigation? Is there a budget for directors to go on and continue with education? These are important topics that that group can drive. Second, I think they need to tell us what we're not hearing as board members from investors, employees, proxy advisors, others. What's the sentiment out there? Um, what can directors expect in terms of change? I've found that the annual review of the proxy season, as I mentioned earlier, to be very informative. And also an annual review of the discussions with the proxy advisors to also be very helpful. And thirdly, I think as the world is growing more complex, uh, corporate secretaries and general counsels really have unique perspective and insights on problem solving and to the new audiences that are out there seeking to have some time with board members. And this audience includes, as we've already noted, regulators, sometimes politicians, other stakeholders that are increasingly vocal. So I think the GCs and corporate secretaries have a great deal of knowledge and interesting perspectives. I'd encourage them to be more engaged in setting meeting agendas and being actively engaged in appropriate discussions, not just minute takers. In closing, I would suggest that boards, GCs and corporate secretaries, as well as senior management, be continuous learners and embrace the spirit that change is opportunity. Great, well, Margaret Preston, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure, thank you, Ben. And good luck for 2024 with your boards. All the best. Mark your calendar and book your all-access pass for Governance Live 2023. Our new festival of corporate governance that features three major events across two days on November the 7th and 8th. Don't miss out. Join more than 500 leading governance professionals in New York for the M&A and Activism Forum, the Corporate Secretary Forum and the Corporate Governance Awards 2023. Governance Live 2023 is your one-stop shop to learn from the last 12 months, celebrate your hard work and prepare for what will come in 2024. Protect and enhance your shareholder values and diverse your governance strategies for next year. The Gala Awards Night is the biggest celebration of governance excellence, achievement and innovation in North America. Visit corporatesecretary.com slash governance live to find out more and to get your discounted early bird all access pass to these three essential events. See you in New York from all of us at Corporate Secretary.
And that's it for today. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of the Governance Matters podcast with me, Ben Maiden. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure to like, subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening.